0: All right, as we're going through Exodus, um, there is a lot in Exodus that makes me just just realize how, and, and this is actually true for me anytime I'm looking at any piece of history, is there is so much that is happening at every season. Um, at our living history days right now, we're talking about the, what is it, the Battle of Guilford Courthouse is one of them, and some of the other times, things that were happening leading up to the, the Revolutionary War time. And as we're preparing for the reenactments, what's fascinating to me is that every time we're preparing, we're able to say, okay, so here's what was going on in the lives of the people. Here's what was happening in the states. Here's what the history was. And, and it's so far, any state we're in, we're in North Carolina this time, um, any t- state we're in, we can never look at it and say, oh, so for the past 200 years, they lived peacefully. And then suddenly, war erupted. It's always, well, there was this, problem and then there was this royal governor who showed up and then there was this battle and then there was this disagreement between two people. There was a clash of peoples and now we come here and you realize that the peace that they spoke of and the peace that they longed for just was almost more of a concept than it was a reality. And so there is a a reality for us as individuals and I know I experienced a lot of this as a child. I grew up And even though I was very protected in our little uh, communities wherever we were, I would still, on Sundays, hear the men sit around and talk about what was happening, Uh, Cold War events were happening, and just different things that were going on, And, and they would bring up and so here, you know, the Amish, the, the nonviolent, peace-loving people would be talking about stuff that had happened in the Civil War, and they would be talking about what happened in World War I and World War II, and, and the necessity for the conscientious objector, objectors. And there was always this in my, you know, because I kind of feel like I should have grown up in the Shire, right? I grew up Amish. It was very distant. It was separated. And so it should be safe. It should be fine. And yet I was always hearing these. And so as I'm reading through Exodus and I'm actually anywhere in the scripture, it, it is always amazing to me how close whoever we're reading about, how near they are to some sort of a combat, some kind of battle, some kind of an attack. And on a spiritual level, there is a lot to be learned from this. Uh, I took some time last night to remind myself of the calling that God has placed in my life and the different times. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I want you to stir up the gifts that are in you by the laying on of my hands. That's the one I'm used to reading. But in uh, 1 Timothy, he goes farther and says, there were the elders laid hands on you and there was a gift given to you. And you need to remember that don't stop fighting. Stay in the battle. Remember the prophecies that were spoken. And as he's, as he's telling Timothy this, and he's reminding him to stay in the battle to finish well, because he says there are many who are not finishing well. And as I was thinking about that and was considering for myself the, my own journey with the Lord, there are specific times and places that I go back to and say, right here, this person influenced me, this. And sometimes it was a matter of minutes or hours spent with someone, and it completely changed my life. And you know, one of those people that came to my mind was the evangelist Nelson Koblenz. We got to spend hours, uh, you know, a whole day with him last fall, and sometime we went to church with them, and I got to spend more time with them. Uh, but back in 95, when Nelson Couplins came through our community, and he stopped there at Eureka, at Kootenai Christian Fellowship in Eureka, Montana, and he was speaking about relationship what is fascinating to me is that God used a night when he was talking to families about relationships to then call me into ministry to say, Lord, I'm yours. How do you want to use me? And so that night, there are several images that, that stick out to me. But one of them that always comes back to me very clearly is, is that I am praying with my friends and I'm, there's a circle of us guys and we're praying and we're surrendering our life to Jesus saying, how do you want to use us? Use us. And as we're praying, Nelson Cummins came down, and he walked around the circle like this, just praying for us as he went around. And he prayed quite a while because he prayed all the way around. He was just praying while we were praying. He was praying for us. And what I specifically remember is as he came, uh, I think Marion. Ish was on this side, and Eli-ish was on my other side. And as he came around us, he was praying, Lord, send the fire that these men are asking for. Send your revival that they're asking for. Let them know you. And he's praying this. And and that has often stuck in my mind, is here is someone who doesn't know where we are, doesn't know what's happening in our lives, but he knows that there are young men that are wanting to surrender to the Lord. And what's, what's his story? Well, I got to ask him all the details of his story last fall for, the, for, uh, for one of our documentary interviews. And, and I got to hear a lot of what was happening and to hear his own story and how in his own life, much of his family relationships were hurting because he didn't know the Lord. And as he came to know the Lord, God restored his family relationships. And so for him, he was sharing a life message, but he was also challenging others to say, how should I follow Jesus? And... I in thinking and considering that, because I, you know, I was just making a list, I was saying, okay, if I'm supposed to remember the prophecies, if I'm supposed to remember what Jesus has done for me through other people, I probably need to write it down. So I was just writing down little, uh, you know, just on, a, on, a, on my note, in my prayer journal, just to, saying, you know, h- here was this one. It was Nelson Koblenz, uh, 1995, and then I just made a little note, you know, a little quotation that said, um, Lord, send the fire, and how... Some, from 95 until now, there's been that realization and awareness that when God used Nelson Coleman's to encourage me and to pray for me, there was some sort of an expectation created. I remember going back the first time, probably 2000, oh, I think it might have been 10 years after that night, uh, going out to, to the ministry headquarters out in North Carolina and stopping in and chatting with people and like realizing that like Nelson Coblenz doesn't know me apart from the fact that he knows my friend Marion who was standing next to me. And so I could say, You prayed for us that night, and he knew which night I'm talking about, because Marion had also shared that night, right? And so there was a certain level of realization that it's not that Nelson Koblenz is going to come and say, Hey, what did you do with the encouragement I gave you? It's not that as much as as, as I'm wanting to stay faithful and to stay in the battle, I need to be remembering these things because there is a God in heaven who knows who he used to impart things to me and to encourage me. And so what is fascinating to me is there was a season of my life where I walked with another denomination, and as I was walking with them, whenever, like, they weren't, they weren't that interested in knowing how a Mennonite evangelist prayed for me because they weren't Mennonite. They, they wanted to know how who in their denomination helped me. And so it, it was actually a season where I, I in times, there were, there were several things that had happened in my life that I was almost willing to like, mute and not think about because I was trying to please and walk with these men. And as I was trying to walk with these men, there would be times like the time I had last night where I'm sitting down and I'm praying, I'm saying, Lord, you called me. You have sent me out. How do I know that? Well, and I'd start going back in my mind to the experiences I had had with the Lord and these other people and other places would start cropping up. And I realized at the time that it was important for me to be in a place that whoever God used to bless me, to encourage me, to redirect me and to refocus me, I needed to be in a place where I could honor those people. And if I cannot honor the people God used in the past because of the people who are with me in the present, then something needs to change, whether it's the associations that I have around me. or what but Somehow I need to be able to talk about what God has done in the past. Now, I can't only talk about what God did in the past, but I need to be able to talk about that. Because there is... In the, in the parable of the sower, when this word goes out, the seed goes out, there's these birds that come and pluck up the seed. And that's what it feels like to me is when God does something and then later the enemy comes along, and he doesn't, you know, we just heard the account of how he tempted Jesus, but the enemy comes along and says, Did... he kind of takes that. You don't remember that. You, you, can't, you can't, that was wrong denomination, you know. Um, bad influence. Okay, you know, not, not that one either. And so pretty soon you're left isolated with nothing to remind you of the faithfulness of God. And so as we look at something like Exodus, the children of Israel are needing to remember what God has done. And I am needing to remember what God has done. It is helpful for me to see what God has done for the children of Israel. It is helpful for me to know what God has done for his people throughout church history. But it is also vital that I take the note of this and say, I need to know what has God done in me. And here's, for an example, I might be reading the Word of God one night, and as I'm praying and seeking the Lord, I read a passage and it seems to come alive to me and it brings courage and strength. But then later, Much later, when I need the same courage and strength, I will discount that moment and say, I don't know. And I'll I'll do like Scrooge, and I'll say, it was just a bit of undigested beef. It wasn't really God interacting with me. It was just, I don't know. I was very emotional, you know? And and so I don't know if I can count that time in God's I don't know. And so I don't count that word, but just then the enemy robbed me of something. And so I need to have a way to remember how God has interacted with me. And so, uh, you know, this, 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 uh, this month is one year since the Step Out of the Boat Conference. And so a year ago at the Step Out of the Boat con- con- Conference, that was when Peter had made a real profession of faith. We can't go back this year, but we've been discussing maybe we'll record a testimony and show the video of him getting baptized and send that back to Joe Kime just as a way of encouraging Joe for what's been happening. But not only does it do that, it also helps solidify and remember what happened for Peter. So those are the kind of things. We don't have to make a video about everything that happens in our life, but it is helpful for us to do something to help us remember this. So as we look at Exodus There's a lot of history that has happened for the children of Israel at this moment. But I don't think, based on some of the other things, that they're just sitting around totally remembering it. But there was a question I had when I read Exodus chapter 1 this week. And so I started looking. The last five verses in Exodus. So this is Exodus well, I just have to go look. So the last chapter of Exodus, the last five verses. you can find those, Reagan. I don't know what number of chapter that is yet, because I didn't write it down and there we go. Exodus 40 verses 34 to 36. So at the very end of Exodus, this is where we're headed. At the very end of Exodus, we get to this moment when the tabernacle has been built, the work has been completed. And the people are all together. And it says in verse 34 of Exodus chapter 40, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So this is an awesome moment where the God of heaven comes and reveals himself to an entire people group visibly. He says, this is a cloud. This is me. I am present with you. And at night, it's fire. I'm with you, the pillar of fire. I'm with you and I'm present with you. And so in the middle of that scenario, when you can look up from wherever your tent is and you can look across the field or down the valley, you can see down there the tabernacle and you see the cloud, or at night you step outside your tent door and you see the fire down there, it seems that in that time, it would be very, very difficult to forget God because he's very present. And so as you look over there, you have to remember all the things that have happened. But at the beginning of Exodus, we're not in that moment. We're not at the place, there is no pillar of cloud. There is no fire. The presence of God is not visible with the children of Israel. They're in Egypt. Now, there was some time ago, and it would be, you know, this is, this is an interesting moment here, because we had the Pharaoh forgetting, the new king forgetting, uh, or, or who did not know Joseph. So a new king comes up. And so, the, so he says, well, who are these people? Why are they living here in this beautiful spot in the land? Why are they multiplying so much? Why are there so many of them? If we don't do something about it, there are going to be more of them than there are of us. And that's going to be a problem. So let's enslave them. And so they start doing things that eventually, he, he, as, as it says in, uh, so this is Exodus chapter 1, in verse 10, he says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. So, there is a scenario here and I I just, there are several pieces today that I wanted to pull out of the, the rest of chapter one. But I want to think in terms of what they're experiencing. Were there people, I don't know this, I'm just asking a question, were there people that we're able to say, look, Joseph did so much for the entire country of Egypt. We are his people. We need to go remind the Pharaoh and all his court of exactly what all we did and why he should be kind to us. So this would be in terms, uh, so the way I translate this to us is this is the, and we don't have any evidence of this happening, so I'm not, I'm just asking a question of the times they were in. Were they, were they asking that sort of a question? Were there people saying, if only the Pharaoh could be reminded of who Joseph was and how we come, we're here, then we could correct these issues that are happening. It's very possible that somebody either thought it, I don't know if anyone tried it because there's no account of it here. It's not something that God wanted us specifically to know, but I'm trying to get us back into that scenario where we're thinking about how the people felt. So this is when a government has changed dramatically from where they started. And most of us can feel that. In fact, in most uh, seasons of history, you can find a group of people who acutely feels this and says, wait a minute, this is not how we started. We used to do this and now we're doing this. And why, why is this not the same still? And so I don't know these questions, but I just have to think that with all the people in Israel, They didn't all just go and buckle down and just do whatever. Okay, let's go work. Let's go. Because it says, uh, verse 11, so Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the the, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. So there is this, for some reason... Whatever the Egyptians say, the children of Israel are doing. But the Egyptians themselves, the the leaders, are looking at them, and they are in dread of the children of Israel. So there's this. This doesn't seem like a mutually, uh, mutually kind, uh, compassionate, whatever relationship. It's the opposite. They're, They're both in fear of each other. And so the more they're afraid of the children of Israel, the harder they come down. And we get to verse 14. It says, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. And so let's stop for a moment, though, and just think about this bondage. What are all they're doing? They're building, they're do- making bricks, they're doing the- all manner of service in the field. And everything they did was with rigor, or as it says, with harshness, is what one of the translations puts it as. And so they're, they're working hard, and there is a concern that the Egyptians have, is that somehow there's more of them than there are of us. And so it would seem that if, if all of the Hebrews would just start counting and say, wait a minute, why are we doing what we're doing? And they would just, you know, go on strike or something. They could just stop everything. That's what it seems like to me as an American, right? But that's not what happens. They just continue to serve. In fact, later on, we see that when Moses tries to say, what, you know, let's do something, they're like, what are you going to do? Make it worse for us? This is not cool. Like, you're, you're making trouble for us, Moses. And so, so there's this, this mindset that's happening. And yet we come down to the children, to the midwives here in, chapter, in verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other, Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women... And see them on the birth stools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then he sh- she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? Then, and the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. All right, this is a fascinating account. And as I was was wondering, as I was reading it, I'm thinking, well, I'm looking at this from the perspective of a, an American, right? Maybe an Amish guy, not truly Amish, right? But I'm just trying to think. So I thought, well, what did other cultures? So I was trying to find some of the early church fathers, what they wrote about this. So uh, when I did, I found there were two camps, and they didn't write very much about it. But some of them just couldn't get over the fact that the midwives lied, and God somehow still blessed them. And so that was the only thing. They were like, somehow we don't know why God blessed them. It couldn't have been for lying, so it had to have been for. And so they were, and, but every time they wrote about it, it was like, and and then the midwives lied. And so it's just like it was, it was a real problem. Like the midwives lied. And so I thought, okay, I can see that that can be a problem. Like that, it can be a problem for me as a believer looking at it, going, but why did the midwives, you know? did And so, so then I went back and read it, and I was like, okay. So when I just read it. Did the midwives lie, or is what they told—is that what they said—is that the truth? Because they could have. The midwives could have gone and said, "Okay, Hebrew women, here are all the kit. Here's everything you need. Here's all the stuff you need. And don't call me until you've got the baby wrapped in that blanket, okay? And then you call me, all right?" And so, so that could be. They, the midwives could have been training everyone else in the in the camp on how to deliver a baby, and they could have actually spoken the truth to Pharaoh and said, "Oh, you know what? The babies are being born before we're being called." We don't know, but it's just, is there. And so because they give that account and then, so what happens though, is that it says the midwives feared God. And so they decided to not listen to the Pharaoh. And so the question I had as I was reading through this over and over again is because there's, there's a, there is a moment at the very last verse where it says, so Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river. And so I'm At first I read it and was like, so he's telling everybody that every son? No, he's telling everybody in the land that every Hebrew son needs to be thrown in the river. So when the midwives wouldn't do what Pharaoh said and wouldn't listen to him, now he's going out and he's creating this, it's it's a, it's a mandate coming down from the Pharaoh saying, I want every Hebrew male child dead. Which then leads to a question. The fact that Moses himself was hidden the way he was and that it's written like it was, does it mean that there were people in the Hebrew nation that were there in Egypt? Were there people that were complying? Were there people that just went along with it? Why? Because the fact that Moses was hidden for three months and then he was put in a basket and put down the river, that whole account, why is it that that is so that is very significant. It doesn't say that Moses' mother put Moses in a basket and put him down in the river with all the other male children. Like, it's the one male child that's being put down there. Why is this happening? So what was happening? Was it, it, uh, you know, I asked Stacy, she's like, well, I just always imagined that the soldiers were, you know, raiding through, and anybody that wanted to gain brownie points with the Pharaoh would say, hey, there's a male baby over here. And the soldiers would come, and we're doing the killing. And so, but something was happening. It doesn't specifically, again, tell us this, but it seems that the male children were being killed at that time. Now, there are still young men around by the time that we actually, um, you know, we still have people Moses' age that are men around by the time they're leaving. And so there's, there's, I don't know how long this was. I don't know. If this was just completely, there's so many details we don't know. And so I was trying to just soak it up a bit and understand what was going on. And so, I, you know, I have the question, are they speaking the truth or was it actually a lie? And then there was just the realization that in so many generations we've experienced this where the enemy of God inspires the kings of this world to order the death of infants in some way or another. And how many times in history do we find ways, and so and it's so demonic because the enemy will come. And so you'll have you know things like the killing of the infants uh, with, with King Herod when Jesus was born, and we look at that and that's very clear. But then we see the, the other, the, the, the silent genocide of abortion that's in our country, and we see this constant attack of the enemy on the babies of the nations. And In the middle of this attack that was happening, the midwives feared God. And so the visible presence of God shows up at the end of Exodus. We're not there. How did the midwives fear God? There's no tabernacle. There's no temple. I don't know what they... How did they fear God? How did the midwives actually know the Lord and fear him? What was happening? (laughs) And these are again. So I'm asking a lot of questions that I'm not giving answers for, because I don't know the answers. I'm just I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that the midwives at this point, when Pharaoh no longer knows Joseph, but there's something happening in the Hebrew culture, in the way that the families are are, are multiplying and growing, that these Hebrew women, at this space between the tabernacle that is to come and between the prophecies of the of Abraham and those of the past, somewhere here, the Hebrew midwives fear God enough to say, basically, we ought to obey God rather than man. And so, when you think about what the midwives were doing, they had a specific calling as midwives that they were supposed to bring and nurture new life into the world. That's what they were doing. And so, This is so typical, too, of the enemy, is that he came in and he asked through Pharaoh, he said, I I need you to violate your calling, to not do what you're here to do. You are here to protect, to nurture, to deliver life, and I want you to bring death and administer death and to actually destroy the very thing that you are supposed to be protecting. So we have the midwives fearing the Lord, with Pharaoh asking them to do the opposite of what their calling is and what their role is and they are not complying and so the pharaoh says what's going on and they give him an answer that says because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them and so whether this is an arranged truth or whether this is a a calculated lie is a is a question that people in the past, who have thought about these things have not come to a clear conclusion. Some have concluded that, Eli- that they were lying. Some concluded that. And so, if they conclude that it's a lie, here's what they do they say, okay, so the midwives lied. However, that's not why God blessed them. God blessed them because they protected the babies. And so, maybe they did this in a wrong way. And so, as you know, I'm reading through that, going, okay, you know, I remember thinking about uh, Bible smuggling and reading Brother Andrew and his, his, um, he has the Smuggler's Ethic book that he also writes about because uh, you know, he's literally disobeying who knows how many laws and sometimes international laws in order to get Bibles into countries that don't want them to have Bibles in there. And so he's just doing this. And he's like, no, because this is for the kingdom. We've got to get these in. So Open Doors International is still at work today. Every so often I get a newsletter from them of what they're doing and where they're going. They go places that most of us wouldn't want to go. You know? So Open Doors International, they're the kind of people that are going and say, where's the worst, most horrible place for Christians? Can we get Bibles to them in there? So you know, they're, they're praying about places like Pakistan and North Korea and, and Iraq and Afghanistan. They're looking, how do we get into these places? So they're trying to figure out how, you know, they, it started out with the Soviet Union back in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but now they're, taking, they're continuing the work of making sure that the children of God, wherever they are, have Bibles. And so that's what they're doing. And as they're doing that, I'm reminded of Brother Andrew. And you know he had the whole issue that he wanted to take Bibles in, but he didn't want any Russian guards or any communist guards in any of the countries, you know, whether it was Yugoslavia or wherever. He didn't want to be discovered. And so he would always work so hard to hide the Bibles he was taking in, and then he would finally get into the country. He would go to a park, and then in the park you know, he would set out his picnic lunch. And then while he's eating picnic lunch, as he's watching around, making sure no one sees him, he starts unpacking where all the Bibles are hidden and putting them in different places so he can then deliver them. Well, at some point, Brother Andrew starts thinking, if God is able to protect me through here, I I should never have to tell a lie. And I shouldn't ever have to actually, I mean, like, if God is able to do this, why do I even have to hide these things? And so then he starts doing border crossings where he's got the boxes of Bibles in the back. And he's got a Bible just laying right on the front seat next to him. And he's like, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to tell him the truth. And so he has numerous Accounts of different things that happened. And you know, and and one of them is he's he's they have all of his Bibles in the off in the, the little hut next to the border crossing. They have all of his Bibles on these tables and they bring him in and, and he starts preaching to them from the Bible. He says, Do you know what this says? Do you know what this says? And he just starts, he's like totally unafraid. And and one of their superiors comes in and says, Get all these Bibles back out there and get him out of here. And so that's what happens. He gets everything back in there and gets sent out of there. And so he is experimenting with the Lord on what it means to just boldly tell the truth and never have to tell a lie. And you should read it. You have both, uh, it's God's Smuggler is one book. And then he has the ethics of smuggling because he had a lot of pushback from law-abiding evangelicals who said you shouldn't be breaking the law by uh, taking Bibles places where they don't want them. And so he had to deal with that and say, listen, whose kingdom am I in and who am I supposed to obey? Should I obey God rather than man? Now, in his, his final word was something along this line. He says, you should be at a position in your life with Jesus that you can trust that you are doing what he's asked you to do. And if he has asked you to do it, that you can trust your life into his hands while you're doing it so that you don't have to use your own power and your own cunning to try to figure out how to make it happen, you should be able to trust in the Lord and do what he's asked you to do boldly and expect God to protect you. If you're finding yourself in a place where you have to lie about things, then somehow you haven't fully understood God's assignment for you and you have not fully received the grace that is needed to do it. Because it means that you might still be operating in fear instead of fully operating in faith. So those, those are my, that's my summary of what I got out of reading what he had to say. Those are not his exact words, but I think about that a lot of times is that the king of the world asks us to do something, and we say, wait a minute, that goes against what the king of heaven wants us to do. And so we are suddenly confronted with this disparity. There's this there's, there's, we can't do this because we belong to Jesus, but we're being asked to do this. And not only are we being asked to do it, everyone's looking at us. Are we do- what are we going to do? And so in the confusion of that moment, in the brokenness of ourselves, we're recognizing that there is something different, the, and, the, and the king is ordering us to disobey God. And what's fascinating to me is in that moment of brokenness, we may according to Augustine, we may be like the midwives and lie and God would still bless us because we were doing the right thing. But we could be in the place of brother Andrew and say, well, or Daniel, you know, when he looks at, uh, and the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the midwives could have said, Pharaoh, there's a God in heaven who loves children and forbids us to kill them. And so we're not going to obey you. They could have said that. I don't know what would have happened next. We might have extra chapters in Exodus. I don't know. They could have just done that. They could have just said, we fear the Lord more than you. And and they could have used the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, we believe not only that we're not supposed to kill these children, but we're supposed to disobey you. And we believe that the God of heaven can protect us. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to obey him. They could have used those words from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the the part, I think, that I was applying to myself is that in our brokenness, in our own smallness, we are suddenly in a situation that we weren't expecting to be in in our lifetime. And the kings of the earth are commanding us to disobey the king of heaven. And we are afraid and we are confused, and we are rattled. But in that moment, if we still say, no, we're not going to obey what they're saying, we're going to obey what the king says, God honors that. And so while I want to think that I would have the time to arrange my heart correctly before the Father that I would have the time to read and meditate on the Word of God and to hear what he has to say and to be able to clearly think through and to just put the Bible right there where all the Soviet guards can see it and just come in and drive up and they say, what are you doing? I say, I'm bringing encouragement to the Christians in your country or whatever I would say. If I would just be bold, I would like to think that I could be prayed up and ready to do this thing. But the reality is, that I would probably show up at the border and, and show them my passport and say, well, I'm an artist or a filmmaker or something. It's true, I am. In fact, my passport usually either says, uh, most of the time it says artist on it or, or something like that. And so even when I'm traveling, cause you know, an artist needs to go everywhere and see everything. And so it is a good, it's a perfectly good thing to have on my passport. However, and, and maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing but I just, I just want to think through this and say, okay, so there is the ideal over here where I speak the words like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then there are the midwives who feared God. And whether this is a complete lie or whether this is just a sort of a, a, an active, actual reporting of, the, effect, of the, what, the events of what actually happened, I don't know because we're not specifically told. It doesn't say right here, and the, midwi- and the Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh. It doesn't say that. It just, they just said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. I, I love the, the response. I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of hilarious to think about that he goes to the Pharaoh and says, well, you know, your, uh, your women... Your Egyptians, you Egyptians, know, they need all kinds of comfort and doctors, and it takes a whole professional staff, and it takes days and weeks for them to give birth to a child. But the Hebrew midwives, they are strong and lively, and they can just do it. And so there is a little bit of uh, almost humor in there as well. But I think for myself, as I was reading through it, the application that I was making is the fact that there is always someone somewhere ordering me to disobey God there's always someone ordering me with whatever authority they have to try to tell me that I should not do what God has called me to do. And what's what's scary about that is sometimes that is an evil government that is telling me to do that. Sometimes that is a well-meaning family member that says, I don't think you should do this. Sometimes it is the... The church itself says, you know, we have policies that say we don't do that kind of thing. And so there are always voices that would be speaking against us. In the same way that there's always voice, uh, the, the enemy is always trying to kill the children, in the same way, he's also always trying to cloud the voice so that we can't hear this. And I don't know, some of you all heard last week, Peter and the boys had made a, a little It was like a stop motion, but they would just record a bunch of audio on top of each other. And at the bottom of the audio was the voice of God that said, obey me. But by the time they were done, all you could hear was sirens and horns honking and all kinds of noise and children yelling and screaming. And there was just so much noise that it was almost impossible to hear, obey me. And I think this is the noise that we have to deal with. It's underneath, we have a still, small voice. We have God speaking to us. And there's so much noise in the world. And all the noise wants to tell us what we ought to do and how we ought to do it. But the midwives feared God. And so that's what I wanted to be said of us, is that in the middle of the enemy speaking to us, in the middle of all the other words, that we can say, well, I fear the Lord more than I fear you. So the fear of man brings a snare. We don't want to go down the path of the fear of man. We want to go and be established in our paths by the God of heaven. And so while there's always someone ordering me to disobey God, there are also always people scattered here and there who refuse. Sometimes they look like quiet Quakers, and you don't even realize that they're resisting, but they are. They are not doing what the government has asked them to do. Sometimes they look like that character. I'm trying to remember what, what um, Western movie it was from, and I can't remember the guy's name. All I remember is he's standing out in the middle of the city street, and he's got his guns out, and he's drunk, and he's yelling, I ain't going peacefully, and, and he's, he's not going peacefully, right? <laughs> Sometimes that's what it looks like. Because in our brokenness, we don't actually have the ideal way to tell the kings of the world to go get lost. And we have Shadrach and Meshach, Shadrach, (laughs) Meshach, now I'm scared to even try. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, we have their response, and I think there's a lot to be learned from their response, because they literally say, we have to obey God rather than you. And we believe God can take care of us. But even if He doesn't, we're still not going to obey you. So you can do to us whatever you want. We're going to obey the King, Jesus, not the King of this earth. So there's always someone ordering me to disobey God. There's always someone who refuses. And in our brokenness, our sinfulness, We don't always do it right. We don't always do it correctly. We don't always do it with eloquence. We don't always do it in the right spotlights. We don't always send the tape to the right news agency. But there is always someone who refuses to disobey God. And so we say with the Hebrew midwives that we fear God rather than man. And sometimes we say things like, well... You know, and and it just to me it sounds a little bit like they were just almost making an excuse by saying, well, the Hebrew women aren't like your women, you know. So I don't know, did they say this tongue in cheek? Did they say this with like, hey, let's go tell Pharaoh how strong our women and our nation are? I don't know what was going on. Were they just literally going, I could die? So um, well, they were fast. They just had, they gave birth before we got there. You know, I don't know what the response was, but the reality is. That there will be days where you will respond, and you will be refusing to obey the king of this earth because he is asking you to disobey the king of heaven. And in later years, when someone says, "Well, what exactly happened?", you might be embarrassed by what you said or did. And you, may, you know, your grandchildren may know that you stood strong. You didn't do, uh, you didn't disobey God, but they might never hear the story of how you disobeyed God. It might be one of those times where you're in the grave and all the others are standing around and, and someone says, why don't they ever tell me what happened on that day? And so one of your brothers or someone else says, well, because it was a little bit embarrassing, here's what he actually did. Ah, okay. And so everyone starts remembering, okay, so, so we stood for God, but we didn't do it quite perfectly. We were a little bit messy in how we did it. But is that okay? I mean, is it okay for me to say I'm not perfect? I am too small. I am not adequate. I don't have it all figured out. I'm not able to speak this in the best eloquence. But one thing I do know is I will not disobey Jesus. Is that okay to say that? Because I think that's where we need to come to I'm not waiting until I've got it all figured out. And maybe you've experienced some of this in your own life because I remember as a, uh, well, I heard another friend of mine explaining it this way, and he was coming out of the Amish. And so when he was in in grade school, he was learning how to read German, but it wasn't making sense. And so so he observed on Sundays that, oh, as the young people got to a certain age, they would go up with the ministers and they would um, do something while everyone else was still singing, and then they would come back down, and at the end of the, those classes, they would get baptized. He said, like, maybe when I'm old enough to go through that, those classes, then I will understand what all this means. Right now, German is just kind of hard for me because, you know, it's the third language. And so finally, he was old enough, and he goes with the young people. And he's going over there through the whole thing, and he's expecting to finally understand. And So he spends all this time with the ministers. He spends time uh, there reading different things, talking about different things, and he the date you know, he he's like still not making sense of it. He said, like, Well maybe in the act of baptism, maybe then it will all make sense. And so then he gets baptized and it's still not making sense to him. He's still not understanding. He still doesn't know much about God or how the Bible or all of these things. And he's thinking, well, he just needs to keep doing what they're do, saying because that's what they tell him to do. So he keeps going along with it. And he like, maybe when I'm married, then I'll understand. Maybe. And so he keeps going step by step, trying to do the next right thing to understand. But he just feels like he's never understanding. And there comes a day when instead of reading it in German, he reads it in English. He goes, oh, now I understand it. And so at that point, he realized that he was responsible for himself and he needed to do something different. And so I think there is a certain extent to where we might be walking through life and we're waiting and we see other people. Like I remember when I was in my early teens and I would look up and I'd see these guys who were 17, 18, 19 years old. And I'd say, now those guys look like they have got this figured out. They know what they're doing. I mean, look with what confidence they walk. Look with what confidence they talk. They tell jokes that are truly funny. This is amazing. Like when I'm that age, I will have this together. And so then when I got to be that age, I was like, so did those other guys still have problems with acne when they were this age? Like, I have a pimple. It keeps showing up on my nose. It's embarrassing. And so and so, so then you look around, and, and yes, there are those who are confident pimple poppers, but then there are those who have none. And you're like, okay, so what, so, well, maybe, and so you, you keep putting a time, and you look ahead and say, well, when I'm that age, maybe I'll have it figured out. Well, so at some point in my life, I realized that, I was always going to be me. I was always going to be able to question my own motives and actions. And I was never going to be 100% purely positive that I was doing the right thing at the right time in the right way, in the best possible way. I might have to just do it in a Joseph Graber way. So I might just have to go ahead and say it the way I understood it. And then, eventually because at first that takes a lot of courage. You just go ahead and say, no, this is what I, I think this is what I believe. And so you, you're, you're standing for yourself, but eventually you start realizing as you start looking around is that we don't actually in the kingdom have a speech code that we all talk exactly the same way. Like some denominations do. I, this week again, I was listening to a, a message and the guy gets up, To start to preach and the way he talks to the church and the way he starts intoning and the way he uh, runs his sentences uh, and just starts doing this thing, I'm like, he sounds just like. And I went to look up the other guy. Yeah, they sound, I'm like, they must have trained somewhere in the same place. They talk like each other. They must have admired some same person somewhere. But in the kingdom, it's not really like that. We don't have to learn how to talk a certain way, we don't have to have a certain accent what will happen is the spirit of the living God flowing through us, whether I'm stuttering, whether I have a heavy accent one way, whether I'm speaking an entirely different language, but with the spirit of God working through me is going to begin to bear fruit in my relationships with other people. And I will be an encouragement to others, even if I'm not like whatever it was that I was aspiring to be at the time. And so... I honestly don't, haven't heard just a ton of messages about midwife, of these midwives in Egypt, so I don't know if the church traditionally maligns them and says they lied or if we hold them up and say they are awesome because they stood up against fear. I don't know what we actually do with these midwives much, but what I wanted to do with them today was just to simply look at them and say, however they did it, in a time when the presence of God was not visible, before the tabernacle was in their midst, I don't even know what they did um, to, There was no written law for them. They didn't have Moses' law yet, and they're in Egypt. They're being forced to hard labor. I don't know how they feared God, but the biblical record says they feared the Lord. And because they feared God, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved the male children alive. That's the word that I want to have for my future generations, when they look back, they say, what did Joseph do? Well, he obeyed God rather than man. He made a stand for the truth. Whenever there were, were two options, go with the fear of man or stand on the truth of scripture, he stood with scripture, he stood with God, and he continued to do what he was called to do. And so perhaps, and this is tying it back to where I was at the beginning, perhaps the midwives are speaking to one another And they are remembering the word of God to Abraham. I don't know. Perhaps they discuss what God had said to Noah. I don't know. Maybe they're discussing how God brought Joseph into Egypt and how he had brought them all. I don't know what they're talking about, but something is happening with these midwives that they're able to say that they fear the Lord. And so for myself, I started fearing the Lord when I was a young man. And I began walking with him then. I didn't understand at the time that I wouldn't ever come out to this beautiful place where the rest of my life was just going to be a big walk in the park, and it was going to be easy because all the battles were fought. I kept thinking that at some point all the battles would be finished. And I remember in my late 20s um, talking with and this was Little Bear Wheeler. I said, "Okay, so I keep having these battles, and I keep thinking I should be done with this." And he looked at me and said, "Joseph." you're going to be battling until the day you die. You're never old enough that you've achieved victory in every area so much that you're just coasting. As long as you're here in this brokenness, as long as you're here on this earth, there's going to be a battle. And so that brings me back to the words of Paul where he says, stay in the battle. Remember what the prophecy said. Remember what the elders said about you. Remember the calling and stay in the battle. Be faithful to the end. And so, whether the midwives spoke the truth or whether that was a lie, the fact remains that in the middle of a very imperfect situation, they feared the Lord and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. And so for myself, from now until the day I die, I'm going to find myself in very imperfect situations over and over again. And in those times, I'm going to look to the king of heaven for what he wants me to do, and I'm going to obey God rather than man. And when the, when the histories are written, if the generations continue, and my great-grandchildren and their great-grandchildren are looking back, and they're going to see the ancestry, and they will see that there were sometimes people who stood for the Lord, and there were sometimes people who didn't, may they look at my generation, and may they say, here was someone who stood for the Lord. And they might say the same thing about what I'm saying about the midwives where they say, I don't fully understand what was going on or how things were happening, but it says, the record stands, that they served God rather than man. And I want that to be said about me. And so in order to finish well, in order to stay in the battle, in order to fear the Lord more than men, I have to remind myself of my own history with the Lord and what he has done. I have to read his word and I have to stay in a place where I still can believe that God will do the things he said he would do. Because it is possible for us to get so far astray from our from the Lord that we start thinking that God won't do something. In fact, I was as I was praying this past week, there were several things that I realized that I've have, I have quit asking God for because I just didn't feel like God would maybe ever answer those things. And I was like, Lord, my part is to ask and to make the request known to you. You didn't tell me no, but somehow I was disheartened enough to not want to pray that prayer, to not want to ask. And that was the moment where I realized that if you find me in that moment, I would be the guy who's like, well, what's the use? This is what Pharaoh says. I mean, why not just comply? And I don't want to be in that place. I don't want to lose heart. I want to stand strong in all times, and I want to have my faith alive and well. I want to fear the Lord and not man. I'm going to pray to to close this time of our communion, uh, of, of our message, and then we will come to a time of communion. Father, thank you for your love for us. And, Lord, I thank you that you give us accounts like the Hebrew midwives who did not obey Pharaoh, but they they feared the Lord. They feared you. Lord, I thank you also for the other people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who came strongly, like Daniel, who came strongly. And they said, no, we're not going to obey. And we believe our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to obey you. Lord, I pray for each of us and for all those listening that you would give us that faith and that confidence to stand. Lord, even if it's imperfectly or even if we need a crutch to stand, that we would still stand. And We would say, no, I will not serve. I will not disobey my king in heaven. I will follow the words of Jesus. Lord, we need that strength. We need you. And so we come to you asking that in our own brokenness, you would be made strong, that as the, the past passage says, that in, our jar, in the jars of clay, in the earthen vessels that we are, the excellence of the power may be of God and not of man. Thank you for your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.